0: Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the University of Massachusetts Medical School's Office of Communications. Welcome to the Voices of UMass Med.
1: Joining us today is Dr. Justin Makel, Chief of the Division of Colorectal Surgery at UMass Memorial Medical Center, and he's also an Associate Professor of Surgery at UMass Medical School. In 2017, Dr. Makel was appointed to an endowed professorship, the Gladys Smith Martin Endowed Chair in Oncology. Welcome. We're happy to talk to you today.
2: Thanks, Jen. I'm excited to be here.
1: You are at the forefront of your field, really committed to continuous innovation and improvement um, as a surgeon, and I promise that that's what we're going to spend most of our time talking about. Um, but one of the things that sets you apart is your local upbringing. You're a local kid, and so if you'll indulge us, I wonder um, if you can share a little bit about what it's like to be a physician in the community where you grew up.
2: It's really a unique opportunity. I, I, it's a privilege, really. So. Um, so first of all there aren't always opportunities that pop up in your home community where there's a nice fit and we when I finished my training I did my general surgery training in Boston and I spent a year out in Minneapolis doing my colorectal fellowship training and it was time to find a job I started to look around and I had I had an opportunity to go back to where I'd done my general surgery training. I had an opportunity to stay where I was out in Minnesota. And I actually reached out to the team here at UMass to find out whether there was a chance that I could come back home and start my career here, not knowing eventually where it was going to go. And I had some really positive conversations with our chairman, Dr. Litwin, and at the time, the division chief, Craig Patterson. And we realized pretty quickly that we had a very similar vision for what we wanted to create and I saw that there was a real opportunity at UMass. And um, and I felt like I would feel more, more fulfilled starting my career helping to build a program as opposed to just sort of layering myself onto an existing big name institution or program.
1: So what was that vision at the time?
2: We've come a long way, so for example, um, we sort of set our goals with a Five-year and ten-year plans of where we'd like to see the division grow, from staffing levels to to outreach to basically fulfilling the different aspects of our missions of providing clinical care, research, education, and community service. And one of our big accomplishments was starting a fellowship training program. So, at least the way it works in our field is. You'll be trained in general surgery after a five year uh, general surgery training program. And then, oftentimes, people will specialize in subspecialty fields. And so, there are approximately, well, I guess at the time, there were close to 70 different training spots to become a colorectal surgeon uh, here in the States. And um, there was only one program in Massachusetts. And so, we started our program back in 2012. Um, and we Basically that program has, has grown and developed to be, you know, to what we see as one of the top training programs in the country. So we went from a, a group of three colorectal surgeons up to a group of five and um, basically brought on our, an opportunity to help train the next generation of colorectal surgeons as well.
1: And so when you were making that decision to come back home and practice, did it ever give you pause to think that patients walking into your office might have been sitting next to you in high school or might have known you when you were a kid?
2: So my patients have sat next to me in high school. (laughs) My patients have taught me in high school. Really? Um, I've taken care of people who Um, I've met through all different walks of life, whether I was working construction in my summers in high school. Uh, One of my closest patients uh, that I take care of even to this day, I painted his house when I was a senior in high school and he reminds me of that all the time.
1: So does that change the doctor-patient relationship?
2: It brings it to a whole different level. I think that I think that one of the keys to connecting with your patients is to find that common ground. And I think that trying to be as normal of a human being as possible, I think sort of sets patients at ease. And I think when you can connect with them through whether mutual interests or a similar past or whatever it is, it it really helps, I think, put people at ease, gives them a level of confidence in you that they may not have from someone else. And just that sense of familiarity, I think it makes it a lot easier for people.
1: And it keeps you grounded too, I would imagine. There's no question about (laughs) it. So how did you figure out that that medicine or more specifically that surgery was for you?
2: So growing up um, my my mother's father so my grandfather was a family physician in New York City and he was always a role model for me and uh, you know I saw what his career afforded him and the connections that he made with his patients the way he was able to care for his family the way both you know medically and providing counsel and advice and helping people through you know challenging times and it always just seemed like a natural uh, progression for me as well and so i think it was that early introduction uh, to my grandfather as a physician and then as i went through school i recognized i had a lot of interest in in biology and the sciences, and I did some volunteering when I was in college, and I, and I really saw myself fitting in well in the in the medical profession. But it's hard to choose to be a doctor, and then beyond that, choose surgery, and then beyond that, choose a specialty field within surgery. So there are a lot of um, uh, branch points we sort of all go down along our careers. I think we're impacted and we're influenced quite a bit by mentors and people that we work with on a regular basis. And I for sure experienced that in medical school and throughout my residency.
1: It sounds like that seed was planted pretty early on.
2: A long time ago.
1: So the fact is that um, when patients have an appointment with you, the odds are that they're facing a pretty serious health challenge. So can you give us just sort of a general sense of the range of conditions that you treat?
2: So what's unique about our field is that we care for patients of uh, all different ages and demographics. And we also uh, take care of patients with, uh, with diagnosis of cancer in patients who have conditions that are unrelated to malignancy or or to cancer. So we have a, a lot of variety in the types of patients and the conditions that we treat. But basically, having been trained as a general surgeon, my practice is now focused mainly on disorders of the gastrointestinal tract. And so we will work Quite often with our our medical colleagues in gastroenterology, who will care for patients on a medical standpoint, and then we'll provide the surgical services that are necessary. And so, oftentimes, people will be diagnosed with colon cancer; they'll be sent to us. We'll fortunately be able to offer them, uh, in the vast majority of cases, minimally invasive surgical treatment options for their for their cancer treatment, and then we'll follow them for years afterwards. So we're able to provide the acute care, uh, surgical services, but also that longitudinal care that a lot of us really enjoy and get a lot of satisfaction from in our careers.
1: And when you talk about following somebody for years after, is it um, in concert with other specialties, I would imagine, but but you're doing screenings to make sure that nothing's recurred?
2: Right, so we put people on a surveillance program And um, sometimes we're doing that independently, uh, sometimes in conjunction with a primary care doctor, but oftentimes we'll take ownership of that aspect of their care. Whereas in other situations, oftentimes when the cancer may be a little bit more advanced, we'll engage our medical oncology colleagues and they'll follow along as well.
1: So speaking specifically about colon cancer, not long ago, the American Cancer Society came out with a new recommendation that people with average risk should begin their regular colorectal screenings at age 45. The previous recommendation was age 50. In your eyes, is that a good idea?
2: There's no question it's a good idea. There, of course, are public health and financial implications um, with regards to that type of a a recommendation. And we are going to need to get our our payers engaged and involved and supportive so that a recommendation uh, can actually be followed through upon from a financial standpoint. But the fact of the matter is that close to one in 10 of the patients that we treat for a colorectal cancer are diagnosed before age 50. And 50 has traditionally been the, um, the age where we start screening. And remember, the purpose of screening is, number one, to find precancerous polyps so they can be removed, so they never have an opportunity to grow into a cancer, or number two, find the earliest of cancers where they're at a more, more curable stage. And so if we never had an opportunity to screen them with a colonoscopy, Prior to age 50, we, we really lose that, that opportunity. And so for friends and family, I've been preaching for years that I think 50 is too late, especially when we're talking about close to 10% of our patients being diagnosed before age 50. And so um, I'm fully supportive of that, of that whole concept and recommendation.
1: But you did mention that there are some other sort of dominoes that would have to fall to make that really widespread. Um, the U.S preventative service task force recommends screening between ages 50 and 75, and is that pretty much what insurance companies base their, you know, their decisions on?
2: That's right. The um, American Cancer Society made a recommendation in the past six months that we should be considering screening lower than age 50, but that hasn't been widely adopted, and so fortunately, in 2018, we have multiple different options available for screening, and so, for example, if colonoscopy is which we consider to be the gold standard is not approved there are other options such as fit tests or even the uh, other uh, um, tests like the cologuard which are options for patients that that are not procedural based
1: so tell me a little bit more about that i'm not familiar fit test
2: so fit test would be uh, basically a test done by your primary care doctor in the office uh, checking for breakdown products of blood in the stool so colon cancers will um, shed blood cells and they can be detected in, uh, in stool output. So a uh, FIT test is one that's done typically by your primary care doctor, whereas the Cologuard test is, uh, and there's a fair amount of advertising going on right now, um, which basically allows the, um, the patient to collect a sample of stool and then it be tested for cancer cells within the stool itself Interesting. as a screening, screening test.
1: Yeah. And so generally speaking, what are the symptoms? Just remind us, what are the symptoms that would suggest you should go see a doctor?
2: Right. So the difference between screening, which would be a test that's done when a patient's having no symptoms versus a diagnostic test. So when patients develop uh, sort of the, the key symptoms that occur with colorectal cancers, rectal bleeding, change in the bowel habits, unexplained weight loss, or abdominal pain. And so if you have any of those four um, findings, then that's when you would probably, we would encourage you to bring those to the attention of of your primary care doctor who would then order further testing, such as a colonoscopy. Yeah.
1: And don't be shy about it. Right?
2: Oh my gosh. It's, uh, everybody's shy about it. No one wants to talk about it. Um, everybody's afraid of the test. But the way it's done now, I'll tell you, the, the, prep, the prep is still the worst part. We don't have a, a magic way to prep people. But the test itself is easy and extremely safe with very, very low risk for any complications. And we use propofol sedation now so you're completely asleep. You don't uh, feel any pain or any, having discomfort. And oftentimes now we'll, we'll sort of inflate or insufflate the colon with uh, carbon dioxide as opposed to air so it's absorbed and you know, doesn't leave you with a lot of gas and cramps afterwards either. So, it's definitely nothing to be afraid of.
1: With the screening guidelines, we're talking about lowering that age for screening to 45. And you're saying 10% of your cases are diagnosed in people under 50. But for at least a decade now, maybe more, there's been a lot of evidence that people under 40, the number of cases is increasing among people under the age of 40, which is really hard to believe. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, are you still seeing that trend? And if so, what are the clues that might be contributing
2: to it? So unfortunately we are. Um, we have we have a lot of patients who are presenting at a young age, and unfortunately not only are they developing cancer, but the cancers tend to be a bit more aggressive. Mm-hmm. And so um, we need to, number one, be you know very cognizant and aware of any changes in your health. And we know that if you have symptoms that last for two weeks or longer, you can't ignore them, you need to bring them to the attention of your, of your doctor. And second is that um, you need to know your family history. And so if you have a, a strong family history for a cancer such as colon cancer, then you would then qualify for earlier screening. So for example, if you have a first-degree relative like a, a parent, who had colon cancer in their 40s, then we would start screening you 10 years earlier than their age of diagnosis. And so it would give us an opportunity to find some of these cancers at an earlier stage.
1: I really wanna put an exclamation mark on that, like family history, know your family history, and, um, and even if you're in your 20s and 30s and you're noticing changes, don't ignore them.
2: We've seen patients in their 50s and their 40s and their 30s and unfortunately even into their 20s with a diagnosis of colon and rectal cancer.
1: And so is there any anything you can point to as to what might be behind that increase in cases younger and younger and younger?
2: It's all conjecture you know we wonder about our environment about the foods that we're eating the way our foods are processed Um, it's hard to know it's probably a combination of all of it and a lifetime of exposure.
0: You're listening to Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of the University of Massachusetts Medical School.
1: What are some of the evidence-based tips that you can give to patients and people out there who wanna try to do the best they can for their colorectal health and the health of their GI tract?
2: Yeah, it's all about just staying healthy, I think, all around. Um, We know to uh, exercise regularly, um, we know to avoid drinking alcohol and smoking cigarettes, uh, OV, avoid uh, being overweight, and um, basically leading a, he- a healthy lifestyle. And we, we know that it helps not just your colorectal health, but your cardiovascular health and your lung health and uh, s- strong heart, strong mind.
1: You also conduct research um, and you've focused on always trying to improve the outcomes and, and make surgery, I guess, more tolerable for your patients. Can you talk a little bit about or walk us through an example of a surgical advance that you've seen during the course of your career?
2: You know, it's pretty amazing how, how our field changes in such a short amount of time. I, I, would, I would venture to say that the majority of the surgeries that I do on a regular basis now, I didn't do when I was a trainee just 15 years ago. And it, a lot of it has to do with um, innovation and thinking of different ways uh, to accomplish the same goal, uh, working with some of, some of our colleagues in industry with coming up with new products and new devices and new ways to, uh, to uh, visualize uh, the inside of somebody's abdomen in a, in a more minimally invasive way. and. The benefits are that it translates into less pain, faster recovery, um, less time away from from work, and potentially even an impact on cancer-related outcomes because of of a less of a dramatic impact on the patient's immune system as they're getting through that perioperative period. And there's some evidence that suggests that the minimally invasive way of doing business is is helpful, at least from a cancer standpoint as well. you know, one of the more challenging operations that we do is uh, is the surgical management of patients with rectal cancer and so the rectum is the end portion of the colon and it's in a very anatomically compact area of the body and the pelvis and so it's difficult to visualize and access that area and it's a it can be a challenging operation to do open, it can be a challenging operation to, to do laparoscopically and we know that the, the actual conduct of the operation and surgeon experience impacts cancer survival rates. And so we've been um, fortunate enough to, to have uh, a new technique called Transanal total, me- total Mesorectal Excision or TATME that we've been really pioneering here at UMass Memorial as a minimally invasive way of performing the uh, rectal cancer surgery operation that allows us a different view and a different visualized field in order to perform the same operation we believe a bit better just because of better view and instrumentation and technique that we think really benefits the patient.
1: And how long has this technique been around?
2: So um, it was first described in, um, in 2012 and uh, we've been doing the operation uh, here at UMass Memorial since uh, 2014. And um, we've uh, done about 100 of the operations, which is one of the largest experiences here in the States. And um, we've approached it in a very academic way, um, keeping the patient outcomes at the forefront. We've maintained a database we've tracked our outcomes and we've published our results in our peer-reviewed journals and um, we really see it as a real advance and a real opportunity to provide better care for our patients.
1: So give us an example of how using that surgical technique uh, makes the surgery easier for the patient.
2: Sure so t- traditionally the way that the operation is performed, it's we do it through a, a laparotomy which is a midline incision which um, obviously Recovering from that has a has a impact with regards to uh, a pain in the immediate post-operative period and wound related complications whether it be wound infections or hernias for example and now um, We can basically do the operation The majority of it is actually done transanally, which means there aren't any incisions uh, in that area of the body but uh, from the abdominal standpoint instead of having a 15, 20 centimeter long incision, we have four or five five millimeter trocar incisions. Wow. And so most of these patients, you know, wake up with minimal pain. Uh, we can oftentimes get them through the perioperative period without needing any narcotic pain medications and hopefully home within two or three days.
1: So lots of potential benefits there. Is that what you mean when you talk about how the actual surgical technique can um, improve outcomes?
2: It can, but it also, you know we're we're now operating with 4k technology for visualization uh, in high you know obviously in high, high definition we have instruments that can bend and articulate in ways that allow us to get around corners and so we're actually able to visualize a lot of the nerves in the pelvis uh, more clearly the dissection planes more clearly uh, right in front of us and on a big 55 inch monitor as opposed to peering through the abdominal cavity into a deep dark space at the base of the pelvis.
1: How do you keep up as a surgeon with uh, the pace of discovery?
2: So, you know, we're all academically active and we we, um, we attend our, uh, our annual meetings on a regular basis. Uh, we get involved with our industry industry partners uh, we spent a lot of time traveling around the country teaching uh, surgical techniques and learning from from one another and oftentimes you go to these courses as the instructor and you, you come home oftentimes learning more from the from your colleagues than, than you feel like you've taught them
1: and, and how does that translate as you stand alongside residents and medical students and try to train and fellows try to train that next generation you know
2: I hope it motivates them yes. you know I feel like if if they see us pushing the envelope and trying to find better ways to treat our patients. It'll sort of instill that, that, that same sense of innovation in their, own, in their own minds. Perhaps stimulate them to a, a career in surgery or bringing you know, that type of approach to whatever uh, part of medicine they choose to go into.
1: That is pretty stunning. In the course of 15 years, the field has changed so much. So I want to ask you about the significance we mentioned at the beginning. You were last year appointed to an endowed professorship here at the medical school, and I'm wondering how that philanthropy enables you to build on your work, um, and also what does the support not only of that donor but of the institution mean to you?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. It's a you know the bottom line is it's a game changer, and um, you know we're we're really limited in our ability to. Um, apply for and earn research dollars. And the ways that we're able to advance our field and be innovative and find out new advances and be able to track our outcomes and provide better care for our services comes from that mission of research. And so to, to have the support of a generous donor and a generous donor's family to provide us with some of that background support, to whether it be uh, support programs that we're, that we're um, initiating or provide some time support. So we have, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day and as a busy surgeon and sometimes it's hard to carve out the time to do the things that you wanna do, um, has really been a game changer. And we've used some of those funds so far to support some of the research projects that we've done, but also to help bring on um, some more personnel that allow us to number one, provide better care for our patients, uh, and number two, help advance our field through some of the innovative work that we're doing. And you know, the fact that that support came from our medical school and you know, our chancellor and our dean and that they have put that support behind us sort of creates this, I think, it's institutional momentum that makes you feel like you're part of and you want to be part of a winning team.
1: Justin Makel, thank you so much for sharing your time.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
1: Dr. Justin Makel is the Chief of the Division of Colorectal Surgery at UMass Memorial Medical Center. He is also an Associate Professor of Surgery at UMass Medical School and in 2017 was appointed to the Gladys Smith-Martin Chair in Oncology. Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School.
0: Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the Office of Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Visit our website at umassmed.edu news where you can find all of our podcasts. And follow us on Facebook at umassmed, Med, on LinkedIn at University of Massachusetts Medical School, and on Twitter at UMass Medical.